Section 39 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 1, Part 3. Christophe was passing through that crisis of healthy disgust. His instinct was impelling him to eliminate from his life all the undigested elements which encumbered it. First of all to go was that sickening sweet tenderness which sucked away the soul of Germany like a damp and mouldy riverbed. Light! Light! A rough dry wind which should sweep away the miasmas of the swamp, the misty staleness of the leader, Liedchen, Liedlein, as numerous as drops of rain in which inexhaustibly the germanic gemut is poured forth the countless things like zenzucht desire heimweh homesickness aufschwung soaring trage a question warum why an den mund to the moon an die sterne to the stars an die nachtigall to the nightingale, and the frühling, to spring, and den Sonnenschein, to sunshine, like Frühlingslied, spring song, Frühlings lost, delights of spring, Frühlings gruß, hail to the spring, Frühlings fahrt, a spring journey, Frühlings nacht, a spring night, Frühlings botschaft, the message of spring, like Stimme der Liebe the voice of love, Sprache der Liebe, the language of love, Trauer der Liebe, love's sorrow, Geist der Liebe, the spirit of love, Fulle der Liebe, the fullness of love, like Blumenlied, the song of the flowers, Blumenbrief, the letter of the flowers, Blumengruß, flowers greeting, like Herzeleid, heart pangs, mein Herz ist schwer, my heart is heavy, mein Herz ist betrubt, my heart is troubled, mein Auge ist trub, my eye is heavy, like the candid and silly dialogues with the Rosaline, the little rose, with the brook, with the turtle dove, with the lark, like those idiotic questions, if the briar could have no thorns? Is an old husband like a lark who has built a nest? Is she newly plighted? The whole deluge of stale tenderness, stale emotion, stale melancholy, stale poetry. How many lovely things profaned, rare things, used in season or out. For the worst of it was that it was all useless, a habit of undressing their hearts in public, a fond and foolish propensity of the honest people of Germany for plunging loudly into confidences. With nothing to say, they were always talking. Would their chatter never cease? As well bid frogs in a pond be silent. It was in the expression of love that Christophe was most rawly conscious of untruth, for he was in a position to compare it with the reality. The conventional love-songs, lachrymose and proper, contained nothing like the desires of man or the heart of woman, and yet the people who had written them must have loved at least once in their lives. Was it possible that they could have loved like that? No, no, they had lied, as they always did. 
They had lied to themselves. They had tried to idealize themselves. Idealism! That meant that they were afraid of looking at life squarely, were incapable of seeing things like a man, as they are. Everywhere the same timidity, the same lack of manly frankness. Everywhere the same chilly enthusiasm, the same pompous lying solemnity, in their patriotism, in their drinking, in their religion. The Trinklieder, drinking songs, were prosopopoeia to wine and the bowl. Du herrlich glas, thou noble glas, faith, the one thing in the world which should be spontaneous, springing from the soul like an unexpected sudden stream, was a manufactured article, a commodity of trade. Their patriotic songs were made for docile flocks of sheep basking in unison. Shout, then! What? Must you go on lying, idealizing, till you are surfeited, till it brings you to slaughter and madness? Christophe ended by hating all idealism. He preferred frank brutality to such lying, but at heart he was more of an idealist than the rest, and he had not, he could not have, any more real enemies than the brutal realists whom he thought he preferred. He was blinded by passion, he was frozen by the mist, the anemic lying, the sunless phantom ideas. With his whole being he reached upwards to the sun, in his youthful contempt for the hypocrisy with which he was surrounded or for what he took to be hypocrisy, he did not see the high practical wisdom of the race which little by little had built up for itself its grandiose idealism in order to suppress its savage instincts or to turn them to account. Not arbitrary reasons, not moral and religious codes, not legislators and statesmen, priests and philosophers transform the souls of peoples and often impose upon them a new nature, but centuries of misfortune and experience which forge the life of peoples who have the will to live. And yet Christophe went on composing, and his compositions were not examples of the faults which he found in others. In him creation was an irresistible necessity which would not submit to the rules which his intelligence laid down for it. No man creates from reason but from necessity. It is not enough to have recognized the untruth and affectation inherent in the majority of the feelings to avoid falling into them. Long and painful endeavor is necessary. Nothing is more difficult than to be absolutely true in modern society with its crushing heritage of indolent habits handed down through generations. It is especially difficult for those people those nations who are possessed by an indiscreet mania for letting their hearts speak, for making them speak, unceasingly, when most generally it had much better have been silent. Christophe's heart was very German in that. It had not yet learned the virtue of silence, and that virtue did not belong to his age. He had inherited from his father a need for talking, and talking loudly. He knew it and struggled against it, but the conflict paralyzed part of his forces, and he had another gift of heredity, no less burdensome, which had come to him from his grandfather, an extraordinary difficulty in expressing himself exactly. He was the son of a virtuoso. He was conscious of the dangerous attraction of virtuosity, of physical pleasure, the pleasure of skill, of agility, of satisfied muscular activity, the pleasure of conquering, of dazzling, 
of enthralling in his own person the many-headed audience, an excusable pleasure in a young man, almost an innocent pleasure, though none the less destructive of art and soul. Christophe knew it. It was in his blood. He despised it, but all the same he yielded to it. And so, torn between the instincts of his race and those of his genius, weighed down by the burden of a parasitical past which covered him with a crust that he could not break through, he floundered along, and was much nearer than he thought to all that he shunned and banned. All his compositions were a mixture of truth and turgidness, of lucid strength and faltering stupidity. It was only in rare moments that his personality could pierce the casing of the dead personality which hampered his movements. He was alone. He had no guide to help him out of the mire. When he thought he was out of it, he slipped back again. He went blindly on, wasting his time and strength in futile efforts. He was spared no trial, and in the disorder of his creative striving he never knew what was of greatest worth in what he created. He tied himself up in absurd projects, symphonic poems, which pretended to philosophy and were of monstrous dimensions. He was too sincere to be able to hold to them for long together, and he would discard them in disgust before he had stretched out a single movement, or he would set out to translate into overtures the most inaccessible works of poetry. Then he would flounder about in a domain which was not his own, when he drew up scenarios for himself, for he stuck at nothing, they were idiotic, and when he attacked the great works of Goethe, Hebel, Kleist, or Shakespeare, he understood them all wrong. It was not want of intelligence, but want of the critical spirit. He could not yet understand others. He was too much taken up with himself. He found himself everywhere with his naive and turgid soul." But besides these monsters who were not really begotten, he wrote a quantity of small pieces, which were the immediate expression of passing emotions, the most eternal of all, musical thoughts, leader. In this, as in other things, he was in passionate reaction against current practices. He would take up the most famous poems, already set to music, and was impertinent enough to try to treat them differently and with greater truth than Schumann and Schubert. Sometimes he would try to give to the poetic figures of Goethe, to Mignon, the harpist in Wilhelm Meister, their individual character, exact and changing. Sometimes he would tackle certain love-songs which the weakness of the artists and the dullness of the audience in tacit agreement had clothed about with sickly sentimentality, and he would unclothe them. He would restore to them their rough, crude sensuality. In a word, he set out to make passions and people live for themselves and not to serve as toys for German families seeking an easy emotionalism on Sundays when they sat about in some beer garden. But generally he would find the poets, even the greatest of them, too literary, and he would select the simplest texts for preference, texts of old leader, jolly old songs, which he had read perhaps in some improving work, he would take care not to preserve their choral character. He would treat them with a fine, lively, and altogether lay audacity. Or he would take words from the gospel, or proverbs, sometimes even words heard by chance, scraps of dialogues of the people, children's thoughts, 
words often awkward and prosaic in which there was only pure feeling, with them he was at his ease, and he would reach a depth with them which was not in his other compositions, a depth which he himself never suspected. Good or bad, more often bad than good, his works as a whole had abounding vitality. They were not altogether new, far from it. Christophe was often banal. Through his very sincerity he repeated sometimes forms already used, because they exactly rendered his thought, because he also felt in that way and not otherwise. Nothing would have induced him to try to be original. It seemed to him that a man must be very commonplace to burden himself with such an idea. He tried to be himself, to say what he felt, without worrying as to whether what he said had been said before him or not. He took a pride in believing that it was the best way of being original, and that Christophe had only been, and only would be, alive once. With the magnificent impudence of youth, nothing seemed to him to have been done before, and everything seemed to him to be left for doing, or for doing again. And the feeling of this inward fullness of life, of a life stretching endless before him, brought him to a state of exuberant and rather indiscreet happiness. He was perpetually in a state of jubilation, which had no need of joy. It could adapt itself to sorrow. Its source overflowed with life, was in its strength mother of all happiness and virtue. To live, to live too much. A man who does not feel within himself this intoxication of strength, this jubilation in living, even in the depths of misery, is not an artist. That is the touchstone. True greatness is shown in this power of rejoicing through joy and sorrow. A Mendelssohn or a Brahms, gods of the mists of October and of fine rain, have never known the divine power. Christophe was conscious of it, and he showed his joy simply, impudently. He saw no harm in it. He only asked to share it with others. He did not see how such joy hurts the majority of men who never can possess it and are always envious of it. For the rest he never bothered about pleasing or displeasing. He was sure of himself, and nothing seemed to him simpler than to communicate his conviction to others, to conquer. Instinctively he compared his riches with the general poverty of the makers of music, and he thought that it would be very easy to make his superiority recognized. Too easy, even. He had only to show himself. He showed himself. They were waiting for him. Christophe had made no secret of his feelings. Since he had become aware of German Pharisaism, which refuses to see things as they are, he had made it a law for himself that he should be absolutely, continually, uncompromisingly sincere in everything, without regard for anything or anybody or himself. And as he could do nothing without going to extremes, he was extravagant in his sincerity. He would say outrageous things and scandalize people a thousand times less naive than himself. He never dreamed that it might annoy them. When he realized the idiocy of some hallowed composition, he would make haste to impart his discovery to everybody he encountered, musicians of the orchestra or amateurs of his acquaintance. He would pronounce the most absurd judgments with a beaming face. At first no one took him seriously. They laughed at his freaks. But it was not long before they found that he was always reverting to them, insisting on them in a way that was really bad taste. It became evident that Christophe believed in his paradoxes, and they became less amusing. He was a nuisance, 
At concerts he would make ironic remarks in a loud voice, or would express his scorn for the glorious masters in no veiled fashion, wherever he might be. Everything passed from mouth to mouth in the little town. Not a word was lost. People were already affronted by his conduct during the past year. They had not forgotten the scandalous fashion in which he had shown himself abroad with Ada and the troublous times of the sequel. He had forgotten it himself. One day wiped out another, and he was very different from what he had been two months before. But others had not forgotten. Those who, in all small towns, take upon themselves scrupulously to note down all the faults, all the imperfections, all the sad, ugly, and unpleasant happenings concerning their neighbors, so that nothing is ever forgotten. Christophe's new extravagances were naturally set, side by side with his former indiscretions, in the scroll. The former explained the latter. The outraged feelings of offended morality were now bolstered up by those of scandalized good taste. The kindliest of them said, "'He is trying to be particular,' but most alleged, "'Total verrucht, absolutely mad.' An opinion no less severe and even more dangerous was beginning to find currency. An opinion assured of success by reason of its illustrious origin. It was said that at the palace— whither Christophe still went upon his official duties, he had had the bad taste in conversation with the Grand Duke himself, with revolting lack of decency, to give vent to his ideas concerning the illustrious masters. It was said that he had called Mendelssohn's Elijah a clerical humbug's paternoster, and he had called certain leader of Schumann backfish musik, and that in the face of the declared preference of the august princess for those works. The Grand Duke had cut short his impertinences by saying dryly, "'To hear you, sir, one would doubt your being a German.' This vengeful utterance, coming from so lofty an eminence, reached the lowest depths, and everybody who thought he had reason to be annoyed with Christophe, either for his success or for some more personal, if not more cogent, reason, did not fail to call to mind that he was not, in fact, pure German.' His father's family, it was remembered, came originally from Belgium. It was not surprising, therefore, that this immigrant should decry the national glories. That explained everything, and German vanity found reasons therein for greater self-esteem, and at the same time for despising its adversary. Christophe himself most substantially fed this platonic vengeance. It is very imprudent to criticize others when you are yourself on the point of challenging criticism. A cleverer or less frank artist would have shown more modesty and more respect for his predecessors. But Christophe could see no reason for hiding his contempt for mediocrity or his joy in his own strength, and his joy was shown in no temperate fashion. Although from childhood Christophe had been turned in upon himself for want of any creature to confide in, of late he had come by a need of expansiveness. He had too much joy for himself. His breast was too small to contain it. He would have burst if he had not shared his delight. Failing a friend, he had confided in his colleague in the orchestra, the second Kappelmeister, Sigmund Oaks, a young Württemberger, a good fellow, though crafty, who showed him an effusive deference. Christoph did not distrust him, and even if he had, how could it have occurred to him that it might be harmful to confide his joy to one who did not care, or even to an enemy? Ought they not rather to be grateful to him? 
Was it not for them also that he was working? He brought happiness for all, friends and enemies alike. He had no idea that there is nothing more difficult than to make men accept a new happiness. They almost prefer their old misery. They need food that has been masticated for ages. But what is most intolerable to them is the thought that they owe such happiness to another. They cannot forgive that offense until there is no way of evading it. And in any case, they do contrive to make the giver pay dearly for it. There were, then, a thousand reasons why Christophe's confidences should not be kindly received by anybody. But there were a thousand and one reasons why they should not be acceptable to Sigmund Oakes. The first Kappelmeister, Tobias Pfeiffer, was on the point of retiring, and, in spite of his youth, Christophe had every chance of succeeding him. Oakes was too good a German not to recognize that Christophe was worthy of the position, since the court was on his side but he had too good an opinion of himself not to believe that he would have been more worthy had the court known him better. And so he received Christophe's effusions with a strange smile when he arrived at the theatre in the morning, with a face that he tried hard to make serious, though it beamed in spite of himself. "'Well,' he would say slyly as he came up to him, "'another masterpiece?' Christophe would take his arm. "'Ah, my friend, it is the best of all!' If you could hear it, devil take me, it is too beautiful. There has never been anything like it. God help the poor audience. They will only long for one thing when they have heard it, to die. His words did not fall upon deaf ears. Instead of smiling, or of chaffing Christophe about his childish enthusiasm, he would have been the first to laugh at it and beg pardon if he had been made to feel the absurdity of it. Oakes went into ironic ecstasies. He drew Christophe on to further enormities, and when he left him made haste to repeat them all, making them even more grotesque. The little circle of musicians chuckled over them, and everyone was impatient for the opportunity of judging the unhappy compositions. They were all judged beforehand. At last they appeared. Christophe had chosen from the better of his works an overture to the Judith of Hebel, the savage energy of which had attracted him in his reaction against German atony, although he was beginning to lose his taste for it, knowing intuitively the unnaturalness of such assumption of genius, always and at all costs. He had added a symphony which bore the bombastic title of the Basel Buchlin, the dream of life, and the motto Vita Somnium Breve. A song cycle completed the program with a few classical works and a festmarsch by Oakes, which Christophe had kindly offered to include in his concert, though he knew it to be mediocre. Nothing much happened during the rehearsals. Although the orchestra understood absolutely nothing of the composition it was playing, and everybody was privately disconcerted by the oddities of the new music, they had no time to form an opinion. They were not capable of doing so until the public had pronounced on it. Besides, Christophe's confidence imposed on the artists who, like every good German orchestra, were docile and disciplined. His only difficulties were with the singer. She was the blue lady of the Townhalle concert. She was famous through Germany. The domestic creature sang Brunhilde Kundry at Dresden and Bayreuth with undoubted lung power. But if in the Wagnerian school she had learned the art of which that school is justly proud, the art of good articulation, of projecting the consonants through space, and of battering the gaping audience with the vowels as with a club, she had not learned, designedly, the art of being natural. 
She provided for every word. Everything was accentuated. The syllables moved with leaden feet, and there was a tragedy in every sentence. Christophe implored her to moderate her dramatic power a little. She tried at first graciously enough, but her natural heaviness and her need for letting her voice go carried her away. Christophe became nervous. He told the respectable lady that he had tried to make human beings speak with his speaking trumpet and not the dragon Fafner. She took his insolence in bad part, naturally. She said that, thank heaven, she knew what singing was, and that she had had the honor of interpreting the leader of Maestro Brahms in the presence of that great man, and that he had never tired of hearing her. "'So much the worse! So much the worse!' cried Christophe. She asked him with a haughty smile to be kind enough to explain the meaning of his energetic remark. He replied that never in his life had Brahms known what it was to be natural, that his eulogies were the worst possible censure, and that although he, Christophe, was not very polite, as she had justly observed, never would he have gone so far as to say anything so unpleasant. The argument went on in this fashion, and the lady insisted on singing in her own way, with heavy pathos and melodramatic effects until one day when Christophe declared coldly that he saw the truth. It was her nature, and nothing could change it. But since the leader could not be sung properly, they should not be sung at all. He withdrew them from the program. It was on the eve of the concert, and they were counting on the leader. She had talked about them. She was musician enough to appreciate certain of their qualities. Christophe insulted her and as she was not sure that the morrow's concert would not set the seal on the young man's fame, she did not wish to quarrel with a rising star. She gave way suddenly, and during the last rehearsal she submitted docilely to all Christophe's wishes, but she had made up her mind, at the concert, to have her own way. End of section 39